Hey, good morning. If you're here in the room, you're joining us online, either way, we are really glad you are worshiping with us. And if you're new, I'm Charlie, uh, lead pastor here. Glad, so glad all of you are with us today. And I just want to say thanks again for those of you who were here last week. Monday was my birthday. I turned 50. And um, there's just a lot of kindness all throughout the day. The cupcakes were cool. The balloons were cool. And then I ended up with this, um, this book of like just a lot of en encouraging stuff in it. It was really cool. I just appreciate all that. And people have been asking me this week, you know, how does it feel? How does it feel to be 50? As if, as if suddenly, like, as, as if like last week I wasn't old. Like, like my back didn't hurt last week, but now my back does hurt. I mean, it wasn't like a warranty, like it wasn't a countdown clock. I, I, was, I was old last week. But anyways, I, it's not necessarily that I've noticed anything different that way, but I have been, I've been really nostalgic lately where I'm just kind of like asking a lot of questions, just kind of like accomplishment-related questions, you know, like this, you know, how, how do I feel about my life? Do I feel like, like what I've done is, as, has it mattered? And just kind of all of these kinds of big-picture questions. And so having this little book, you know, kind of, kind of helps with that, you know, it's kind of flipping through and you see all these encouraging words from you guys of things that I've said or done that have impacted you. And one of the questions on the sheets, I don't know if you saw them, one of the questions was, um, if there was a movie, who would play Charlie in the movie? And I got a few pages in and Ryan Reynolds was one of the names. And at that point, I just closed it up. It was like, I'm good here. It's like, no, nothing else can be as good as that. And whether or not you think I'm as good looking as him or just as funny as him, I'll take either I'll take either one of those, close the book, good accomplishment, right? But, you know, I mean, I think this is a question, like, some people ask, especially people who kind of have, you know, who are, are leading things or just kind of high achiever people, just kind of asking this question, like, big picture, has, is, does my life really matter? But I feel like that for each person that kind of asks this kind of big picture question, there's also somebody who's, there's another one who's like, you know, I mean, I don't really need to ask that question. I don't even I don't really think like that. I don't ask I don't ask that question because I already know the answer. And I've, I've already decided. It is already very apparent to me that I, that I don't matter. My life, my life is insignificant. That in the big picture of the world, in the big picture of time, I'm just nobody and I'm just trying to survive. And I hope that over the course of this series, we've been going through Ruth and certainly by the end of the day, I hope that you will have a different attitude about that. I hope that you have a different take on the significance of your life to God and really the significance of your life, big picture, and what God is doing in the world. And we've been following over the last few weeks, we've been following this woman, Ruth. And I, I would imagine that if you're going to figure out, what, I, I would imagine she was not someone who spent a whole lot of time waxing philosophical about the big picture of life and where she mattered. I mean, like, she was mostly just surviving. She was mostly just kind of, just trying to make it. And she lived kind of what well, a lot of people think feel. Maybe she even felt like a, like a cursed life. You know, she was, she was, she was, she was a woman in a culture that didn't really value women. She was a Moabite in a culture that didn't really think much of Moabites. She marries into a family, and the, and the dad of the family dies. Her husband dies. Her brother-in-law dies. It just seems like that there's tragedy following her. And again, she's just she's just kind of the wrong person. And you can't. I mean, you. You'd have to have a lot of internal strength to be able to overcome that and not just think, man, I'm just, 
I'm just nobody. I'm insignificant. If I'm asking any questions, like, why? Why does this keep happening to me? And in the, and in and, 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 as, and, as you, and as you think about her, as you put all these pieces together, what you have in Ruth, and we talked about this the very first week, what we have in somebody, a very unlikely hero, a very unlikely person to have a book of the Bible named after her, a Moabite woman who seems to be living a cursed or jinxed life. But yet here we are, and we saw in the initial part of the story that after her father-in-law or her, her husband and her brother-in-law had all died, that finally the mother-in-law was like, okay, we've got to go back home. We're going to leave Moab. We're going to go to Israel. You girls, go back with your family. Just go back with them. Start a new life with them. Get a new husband. i got, I got to go back. And Orpah, her sister-in-law, did exactly that. But um, Ruth was like, I can't. And we have this just incredibly passionate expression of love that has been repeated countless times over the last thou several thousand years of just, all right, where you go, I will go. Your God will be my God. Your family, your people, we mine. And, and, and there's nothing, including death, that will separate me from you. Just this incredible act of faithfulness and love to her mother-in-law. And so together they journey back to Israel. And, you know, they don't have any property rights there. And they're just really just trying to figure out how to make it. And the only way they can is, Naomi says to her, say, hey, listen, um, I need you to go to one of these fields where people are gathering, and you can gather behind them. And this was kind of a, a God-inspired custom. This is something that God asked them to do. That when you're gathering your field, leave stalks behind for people who are widows or, or orphans or strangers, aliens, foreigners, you know, depending on your translation, whatever. And Ruth saw three of those. And so she's back there, and she's, she's gathering, and she's doing this all day just in order to provide for her and her mother-in-law. And as it happens with God's hand all over the story, she ends up in the field of a guy named Boaz, who turns out to be a cousin of her father-in-law. And as such has the role, he can play the role of kinsman redeemer, which we talked about a little last week. It's going to play big in the story again today in chapter 4. We'll talk about that. But essentially, by God's hand, she ends up at, at a cousin, at her, her basically her ex-husband, her, her, I mean, her, her widowed husband and her father-in-law, his family. And, and so, after a time, Naomi says, hey, we got to get you married. And honestly, probably our best shot at this is, is Boaz. And so Naomi comes with this plan that, that Ruth is very faithful to, to follow to kind of make both a romantic gesture towards Boaz but also a gesture to kind of inspire him to consider playing this role for their family of kinsman redeemer. And Boaz we see all throughout in every interaction he has with Ruth that he is drawn to her character, the commitment that she had to her mother-in-law, the love that she showed, her willingness to work hard, and obviously it would seem that there was some beauty, there was some attraction there as well on Boaz's part. He, he really liked her. And so he responds really well to this gesture and says, I want to do it. I want, I want to claim uh, the land. I want to be your family's redeemer. But there is, in fact, a cousin that's a little bit closer to your father-in-law than I was. And he has the right to say, he has the right to say yes first before I have the opportunity. I'm going to go check on this. And this is where we find ourselves. Um, Ruth chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. 
Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, sit here, and they did so. Let's make sure we get the picture here. They're there at the town gate, and it kind of functions as a place for where city business happens. I don't know if you've ever seen this or noticed this. If you ever go to like breakfast places, like in any town in Arkansas, breakfast places early in the morning, any town in Arkansas, and you'll see like there's just a group of dudes. There's a group of dudes over here, and it's more, you know, you can just tell. You can tell. It's not just, it's not just friends. These aren't just friends. Like, like the life of the city is happening right here. Like whether or not, what, what, what's next for Springdale happens with this table. Fayetteville's future is determined by this group of dudes. Like it just seems like that there's like important business. Like the elders of the community have gathered at the restaurant to talk about these things at breakfast. Right? That's kind of what this is. These guys kind of gather together there by the city gate. There's places where you can sit, where you can meet. And they basically attend to the town's business. Any business that needs to happen between people, it's kind of big picture things for the community. It happens here. And so Boaz, as he's trying to figure out if he can be the kinsman redeemer for Naomi and her family, he goes here and he finds a guy who's, who's a little bit closer related. So they're doing this business here in front of some of the elders in, uh, in the town. Verse 3, Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you redeem it, if you redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me, so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Ah, plot twist. He says, I'll, yeah, I'll do it. I'll do it. And so basically, as it's constructed to this dude right now, and Boaz is being ever so crafty in the way that he kind of brought this up to this dude, he says, basically, hey, you know, Naomi, she's a widow. You know who she is. She's here, and she's trying to sell that piece of land. And as the closest relative, you have the first right to buy it. So essentially, all he's telling him is involved in this situation is, you buy this land, give her the money, and now you're going to have land. It's like all you have to do is to buy a really nice piece of property and add it to, your, to, to, to what you have. And for a little while, I mean, there's Naomi comes with it. You have to take care of Naomi. So if I can just do this, I can take care of this older lady until she passes. it will be a little bit of investment for me. But ultimately what I've done is I've increased my land and my wealth. And this dude is like, I'm 100% in. I will absolutely do this. But again, Boaz is playing his cards very slowly. Verse 5. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this the guardian redeemer said, Then I cannot redeem it, because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. And so essentially, once we realize that there is a woman here who can still bear children, who is also involved in this family situation, this unknown cousin begins to have different thoughts about it. When it was just simply, I can acquire a piece of land, and I have to take care of this old lady for a little while, as long as that's all that was involved, he was totally in. But now there's this younger woman involved. And now what he realizes is it's going to cost him a lot more because even you'll see in the wording of this, 
And the wording of this, he says, hey, listen, and so then she's involved, and so what you can do is you can buy this land, and then you provide this family with an heir through this woman, Ruth, so then that kid then can, he'll take the land, and it will be a part of Elimelech, Naomi's family. So essentially the offer for this dude is you can buy this piece of land. It will cost you a certain amount of money. You have to take on this wife. You have to provide her with a son. And then that son is not your son. And he gets the land that you bought. So he's out money. He doesn't get the land. And he raises a family that is not his that gets to do this. But ultimately you're doing all of this to restore a broken and separated family. So a great sacrifice to him, but really does not get much of anything in return. And so this dude, he says, I'm out, I'm out. Verse 7, Now in earlier times in Israel, the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. I don't have anything clever to say. I don't have I don't have like well here's some great insight from the scripture that's just that's just that's just funny that's all that is just funny. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz buy it yourself and he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilian and Malon. So what we have here with Boaz is that Boaz redeemed Ruth and Naomi and their whole family, through his sacrifice, through his sacrifice and his love, he redeems this family. This is what he does. He redeems, he redeems this family simply out of just pure sacrifice. Because the more we kind of get into what kinsman redeemer means, he buys a piece of land from Naomi. Now Naomi has this money. And now theoretically Boaz has the land. But as soon as he provides Ruth with a son... That son will be Naomi's grandson, will be, have Elimelech's last name, and that land will ultimately belong to him and be separated. And so Naomi would ultimately get the money, the family still gets to keep the land, and she gets to have descendants. And what does Boaz get? I mean, I don't want to say nothing. He clearly loved Ruth. But ultimately... This comes out of just pure sacrifice. This was, not, this was not a good decision for him financially. It cost him, way, it cost him way more than he ever received. This is just an incredible sacrifice on his part to lay down what is good and best for him out of a love and devotion to Ruth. He admired her sacrifice. He admired who she was. He loved her. And I am willing to sacrifice what is best for me in order to bring you in, back into God's family. I want to save you. I want to redeem you. I want to bring you back into God's family. And the way that I do that is just pure personal sacrifice. And we talked about this last week. I can't, I can't help but mention it again. This is very clear and obvious foreshadowing in the Bible of what God was planning to do all along through His Son, Jesus. 
This idea of kinsman redeemer, of putting this in there to, to put into the minds of God's people that there are people out there who are isolated, who are cut off from God's family because of what has happened to them. They are cut off and the only way that they can be restored back is for someone to be willing to sacrifice what is theirs so that these other people can be brought in and can be restored back into life and health and the community of God. God put all of these things in there so they would be ready, so that we would be ready, so that we would be able to more fully understand what it is that Jesus Christ did. Jesus Christ, out of no gain for himself, takes, Philippians 2 talks about him being and having this status and being God in heaven and being willing to empty himself of rights and privileges of that just so he could become a person, a person like you. Not just God, but God as a man, a kinsman, if you will. Someone who is like you, who is, in your, who is one of you, who is willing to come and not just to do that, but to live a life of humility, to live a life of poverty. And not just that, but to, live, but, but to sacrifice his life. And not only that, but to be humiliated and tortured and killed in a gruesome way. A complete and total sacrifice where the only thing that he gets out of, he seems to lose so much and the only thing that he gets is to demonstrate his love for you and everything is about what you gain. And he gets love, he gets relationship, he gets connection, but he's sacrificing himself so that you, isolated and broken and separated from the community of God, can be redeemed and brought back into God's family. He is our kinsman redeemer. And so we'll go back to kind of this early question that we were talking about as we're wrestling with this idea of like, does your life matter? Is your life of any great, important, historical significance? And you can come to your own conclusion about that. And you can do it based on any number of factors that you would like. And you can even come to the conclusion, no. But I just need you to know that you will be disagreeing with Jesus. Because Jesus looks at you and says, you are in fact of great significance. Your life matters to me a lot. Where I will sacrifice my life to redeem you back into God's family. I want to pay the price that it will cost to bring you into God's family. Jesus looks at your life in the big picture of the world, in all of history, in all of time, he looks individually at each one of us and says, this one matters to me. It says that while Romans 5 talks about while we were helpless, while we were enemies, while we were sinners, God demonstrates his love for us by Jesus dying for you. Your kinsman redeemer who looks upon you as love and says, I will sacrifice what I have in order to bring you into God's family. And so I want you to at a minimum believe, whether or not I can get you there or not, I need you to at a minimum believe that Jesus Christ believes that your life is of tremendous value. And so we have, we have now exchanged shoes and we continue on here in Ruth chapter 4 to verse 13. 
So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. Now we'll get to the last little part here in just a second. I just want to make sure again that we understand what's happening here. Boaz has a son. But what is everybody saying? Naomi has a son. This is about Naomi. Naomi now has a son. And so in this culture, you're like, man, I mean, biologically it's Boaz's son. I mean, he's got to take care of it. In all real ways, Boaz has a son. Except you're trying to make this make sense in your worldview. In their worldview, Naomi now has a son. And that is the part of the sacrifice of what Boaz did. We cannot undersell this. That he is buying land he doesn't get to keep to have children that will not technically, legally in this culture be his. It is an incredible self-sacrifice on his part to restore this family out of love, out of devotion, out of a kindness, out of doing the right thing, an appreciation for Ruth, an appreciation for Naomi. This is a significant sacrifice. And we see the joy that he is bringing to this family. And that it ends here, our passage does, the end of verse 17, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, 21st century Americans, that doesn't quite have the same what kind of impact that it would have on somebody several thousand years ago who lived in Israel. But suddenly it's like, wait a second. This is the story of David's great-grandma? Are you kidding me? Science fiction and superhero nerds, it's an origin story. This is, what we, this, is what, this is what this whole book is a lot, big time from their perspective. This is an incredible origin story of how the greatest king that they had, the one that was after God's heart, the king that is compared to every king, the king who it is said will be in the line of Judah, one of Abraham's great-grandsons, and will ultimately be the line in which Jesus, the Messiah, is going to come from. The greatest king who is ultimately going to produce the Messiah, the Son of God, she's his great-grandma. And I don't know what I have to do to make you feel that, except maybe I can just do this a little bit more. Like, like this is a big deal. I mean, this is like, wow, this insignificant woman who was, who was so much was wrong about her, her cursed life, it seemed, from Moab, woman, like, we're going to give her her whole book because ultimately through her act of faithfulness, God places her as a person of incredible significance in world history and especially in Jewish history. So ultimately you need to understand this, that God used the faithfulness of Ruth 
change the world. I mentioned this a few weeks ago, and I'm going to say it again, that there isn't anything task-wise that Ruth did that would be like, man, I could never do that. She showed kindness to her mother-in-law by not leaving her. She gathered food, and she made a romantic gesture towards Boaz. All of those things took incredible character, and I don't want to minimize them. Great actions of great character, but like, they're not the kind of things that you would normally associate with world changers. She gathered food. She showed kindness to her mother-in-law. She pursued a husband. Those are the kinds of things that we would call, we would categorize as ordinary things, regular things. But they were done from her out of incredible character and out of faithfulness and out of love to her mother-in-law and to honor God. And her very simple acts of faithfulness, her demonstration of character day by day of being who it is that God called her to be by being faithful and doing the right thing every day, God placed her in history. And I want you to believe that your simple acts of faithfulness, when they are put together, that God is placing you in a significant way in the big picture history of the world that He's telling. Now, I'm going to read this little story, parable thing to you. And so if you grew up in a 1980s rural church, this is all going to feel very familiar. It's not like, hey, I'm going to read this little clever story to you. It's not typically what we do around here. So if this triggers you from your time growing up, I apologize. But I'm going to read for you um, a story that has come to mean a lot to us as a family, which is it's the, the parable of the little kid and the starfish. I'll read it to you. Once upon a time, there was an old man who used to go to the ocean for exercise. One day, the old man was walking along a beach that was littered with thousands of starfish that had been washed ashore by the high tide. As he walked, he came upon a young boy who was eagerly throwing the starfish back into the ocean, one by one. Puzzled, the man looked at the boy and asked what he was doing. The young boy paused, looked up, and replied, throwing starfish into the ocean. The tide has washed them up onto the beach and they can't return to the sea by themselves, the boy replied. When the sun gets high, they will die unless I throw them back into the water. The old man replied, but there must be tens of thousands of starfish on this beach. I'm afraid you won't really be able to make much of a difference. The boy bent down, picked up yet another starfish and threw it as far as he could into the ocean. Then he turned, smiled and said, it made a difference to that one. Now I'm going to tell you another story that is a little more personal, and then I'm going to connect them for you. There was um, about 20 years ago, one Christmas, my mother-in-law got for us this snowman. And it was a Christmas gift, and he had four little, there's four little mittens here, five little mittens here. There were five on there, and she had already kind of pre-made all our names in there, Charlie, Heidi, Maylee, Lauren. And there was this little blank fifth mitten and we've been trying to have a third kid, and we've been trying for years and years and years. And for about 10 Christmases there, we would, we would hang this thing up with its empty mitten. And it was not easy. It was a precious gift. Loved our family, but there was just something about the empty mitten. 
in the November of 2011, we had just become foster parents. And we didn't become foster parents because we thought somehow that we were going to rid the world of the need for foster parents. We were just going to revolutionize um, adoption and foster care in Arkansas. We did it because we believed that God had called us to make a, a small difference. And from the very beginning, we called this precious little baby that came into our home, we called her. Just to say we have a lot of starfish imagery in, our, in, her, in her bedroom and in her bathroom. And um, I, remember, I remember that Christmas, we got the paint pen out and wrote the name on the fifth, uh, Mitten. And now, for the last 11 years, um, it is just an incredible testament of the faithfulness of God to us and also the ability that we have had to make the difference in the life of one incredible little starfish. And so I talk about being nostalgic, having been 50, does my life really matter? Have I accomplished the things that I want to do? And I'm telling you, the entrance of her into our life has made those kind of, those kind of conversations in my brain anymore relatively inconsequential. It doesn't really matter to me anymore. Because I know for certain that our family has made a huge impact in this world by having an incredible impact in the life of one precious little baby girl. And you may not ever adopt, that's fine. You may not ever even be involved in foster care. So that's, not, that's not what I mean. What I mean is, is that you can change the course of history by, by changing the course of history for one person, by taking a step towards someone in their pain and loving them, by taking someone who is disconnected from God and inviting them into God's family. Invite them to church, invite them to your small group to care for them to express love to someone who does not have any, to give resources to someone who does not have any. You have the ability through simple acts of faithfulness by taking your money and investing it in a missionary that you care about who's doing incredible work on the other side of the world, by taking a small amount of money and investing it in this building project for our youth group. You are going to change the course of history for a small number of people. And when your acts of faithfulness of simple acts of faithfulness, no different than Ruth's. Your simple acts of character, of doing the right thing, investing and loving people well, when the story of your life is told, it will have had great impact. Highly unlikely that Ruth was alive when her great-grandson was born. Even significantly less unlikely that she was around when he became king. In her life, all she did was show love to her mother-in-law. And she had no idea that she was an origin story. She had no idea that there were plot twists. She just knew that she was being faithful to who God called her to be in each and every moment. And ultimately, she is an historical figure. And your simple acts of faithfulness and love to the people that God has placed around you will ultimately put you in the same place. Let me pray.